Newton's first law of motion states that a body at rest will remain at rest, and a body in motion will remain in motion, unless it is acted upon by an external force. In this episode, I'm going to tell you a story that undeniably proves this law to be true, and how a meeting in a hotel in New York City would lead to an explosion in fans of the NFL around the world, and it all revolved around fantasy football. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. This time as we step off our DeLorean, the date is March of 1962, and we are in New York City's Milford Plaza Hotel. The gauge telling me the exact date on the DeLorean is broken. I have no clue what happened. So we're just going to go ahead and say we're randomly in March of 1962. And this time the hero of our story is going to be Wilford Bill Wickenbach. And we're going to call him Wink moving forward. Now this guy is going to be dubbed as the father of fantasy football. The reason why he's dubbed the father of fantasy football goes back to 1962 in March. Where he and two other gentlemen would ultimately create what we now know as fantasy football. Those other two dudes were Bill Tunnel and Scotty Sterling. So what I'm going to compare them to is the three heads of Cerberus, a Greco-Roman mythological hellhound with three heads, which guarded the gates of hell in the underworld. But this time, it's a good thing. You see, they are unleashing fantasy football onto the world, and they're going to bust open some type of gate. I don't know what kind of type of gate it is, but they're going to bust open a gate. Probably the gate of which... The average NFL fan did not have a say in the outcome of the game. No longer, man. Now it is time. But even though there were three gentlemen this, you know, they said it was like a rainy, cold afternoon and it was on a long stint of, you know, a road trip for the Oakland Raiders in this bar, they give credit to the first guy that we talked about, and that's Wink. Wilford Winkenbach. There's a quote that comes from uh, Scotty Sterling, and it goes as such. Though I was involved, Winkenbach deserves a lion's share of the credit for developing the game. We chipped in with the rules, but the germ of inspiration was these earlier games he played with golf and baseball, end quote. And although we don't really want to just give one team credit for why we have fantasy football, we kind of do have one team to thank. That's the Oakland Raiders. Back in 1962, they were with the AFL organization. You see, Wink was a limited partner in the Raiders organization, Tunnel was a Raiders PR man, and Sterling was a reporter for the Oakland Tribune. So these are all gentlemen that were wrapped around the Oakland Raiders organization, which, as we know, is a long, storied franchise with some of the most ravishing fans that are out there. However, this is 1962. The team was born in 1960. So let's just uh, say, ha, they were not so good. Their first season, back in 1960, they went 6-8. and eight. <laughs> Then in 1961, they were 2-12. and 12. In 1962, they were 1-13. and 13. So let's just say, there was probably a reason why these fans of Oakland Raiders and, you know, contributors and followers of the team, they, uh, they needed to, something to break out of reality. You know, they thought they were stuck in the Matrix or something, and 
they took the blue pill or the red pill or I don't know which pill it was, the one that puts them back into this place where it's like, whoa, this food is just not tasting good anymore. It tastes like slop. They should have took the other pill. And that's what they decided to do. Let's call him Morpheus. No, no, no. Is he Neo? I'm not sure which one he would be at this case. That's for you to decide. But he took that pill, the one that says, I'm going to stay in like La La Land, you know, where everything's fake, because he wanted to, wait, maybe he created the Matrix. He shifted the initial thought process of the pills. So he created this fantasy world of football for all of us fans. I'm a Lions fan. You Browns fans out there last year know what I'm talking about. Where we might not have the best of luck on the field, but we can root for our different kind of players that we own, and we can still have great fantasy seasons? Yes! Take that pill! I don't know what color it is. Let's call it yellow and green. No, Packers. Uh, let's just call it purple and black, because, you know, red and blue make purple, and we got black just because it's all the colors in one, and that's the color of pill that he made those two gentlemen take on that fateful day, which would lead to fantasy football. So why don't you come along with me? Take the purple pill. Because that's the good one. And we're going to go learn about how fantasy football came to be. These three heads of Cerberus would create a system of organization and a rule book for what would end up becoming modern fantasy football. And you and I are there back in 1962 to figure out how it all happened. But before we get to the organization and the inaugural draft, I wanted to remind you to head to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and to make sure you mash that little subscribe button so you can get the freshest, hottest off the press episodes each and every week. So let's jump to August of that same year. Now this is according to the Toyota Hall of Fame website, which, if you don't know this, they're an actual Hall of Fame, like a physical presence for fantasy football players. I mean, how cool is that? I don't know how many of you out there think that you got the stuff, you know, you're the best player in the land. Well, if you're not in the Toyota Hall of Fame, then you got something to say. And you must stake your claim, you must nominate yourself, or maybe someone else nominates you, so you can become Fantasy Football Hall of Famer, and you can have that bust in the Hall of Fame, the Toyota Hall of Fame. But let's get back to this. You see, some of the sites say that it was actually 1963 and not 1962 when they had the inaugural draft in the first, you know, I guess you could say, Fantasy Football League ever. But I'm not really going to squabble about one year, you know, they got that whole saying of horseshoes and hand grenades and uh, pepperoni on pizza pies from a little town in Italy and all that, so good the pizza pie, and who cares about one year, and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, so now that I'm hungry, let's get back to Wink. As stated, this is the father of fantasy football. And Wink would organize the world's first ever known fantasy football league, and they would have a draft in his basement. They will call their league the Greater Oakland Professional Pigskin Procrastinators League, better known as Gopple. One of the reasons why he was chosen to be commissioner, well, like he says later, you know, because he had the house, was because he had a little bit of a background. It was said that he and his friends invented a similar type of fantasy game for golf back in the 1950s, where they would pretty much, you know, pick players and the points that they would score would result in scores for your fantasy team, and then you would get some victories at the end. I'm sure there were some cocktails and words passed along, and maybe a little bit of, you know, biscuits and cheddars and stuff like that in their pockets are getting tossed from one dude to the next. But although I know this was not their intentions, it almost seems like they were kind of like snobs, where they're like, you know, you have to be with the top class to get in, and can you pass me some of that great coupon, sir, and stuff? And you got this 
Crazy dude rolling up with his head on backwards says, Hey, yo, bro, I would take some of that great poop on. And they're like, sniff at him and scoff, go, shh. Well, I never, and that kind of thing. So they created a qualifications to be in the league, which I understand. I mean, this is their first league ever, and they wanted to just make sure that there was only serious dudes involved. But these are the three different qualifications, and you had to meet one of these criteria. The first one was that you had to be an administrator of the AFL. Or, number two, you could be a journalist with direct relationship to football. Pro football, that is. And if these did not meet your criteria, then the third one, you could be someone who purchased or sold 10 season tickets for the Raiders 1963 season. Like I said, this was revolving around the Oakland Raiders organization. And to give you kind of a thought process on why these guys decided they wanted to start this league, there's a quote for the purpose of the league, and it goes as such. To bring together some of Oakland's finest Saturday morning gridiron forecasters to pit their respective brains and cash against each other. Inasmuch as this league is formed only with owners having a deep interest and affection for the Oakland Raiders professional football team, it is felt that this tournament will automatically increase closer coverage of daily happenings in professional football, end quote. So they weren't just thinking about, you know, their personal fantasy football teams and what they're going to do. They also thought that maybe in a way, I guess you could say indirectly forcing people to pay attention more, study, that kind of thing, it would maybe bring even more coverage for the game, the Oakland Raiders specifically, to the fans of the kind of, you know, the team. So I don't know how much really there's validity in this, and that's what they were truly thinking, but, you know, they put it down on their their bystanders, their bylaws, whatever, and it really probably did help result in making the Oakland Raiders team more popular because later, as we find out, it just explodes from a fantasy football perspective in the Bay Area. But of course, if you're going to have a league, you got to have rules, right? Now, I'm not going to give you all the rules that they had, but I'm going to give you kind of like a you know breakdown of some of the more uh, prominent ones that I saw for the inaugural season. And these are not really in particular order, but the first one goes as such. Lack of skill or study will also afford the heaviest loser the yearly trophy. Symbolic of losers and ineptness in this grueling contest. This award will be presented by the league commissioner at the annual Goppel Banquet, held in late January for club owners, coaches, and wives. End quote. So Wink made a trophy that was like a wooden football with a dunce cap on it. And the loser, uh, the heaviest loser that is, you know, like Dr. Emma Brown, why is everything so heavy in the future? Is there something wrong with the Earth's gravitational pull? You know, that kind of heavy. Basically, what they mean is like the dead last person, the one that, you know, threw in their hat and didn't even care anymore. You have to take this trophy that shows how much of a loser you are, the heaviest loser, and you have to put it on your mantle for all your guests to see for the entire year. And if they didn't have it on their mantle, all the guys in the league said there'd be something they'd have to pay for, you know what I mean? And this first league did have a commissioner that would preside all meetings and handle all the arbitrations. They also appointed a secretary. That would do all the scorekeeping and, you know, take care of the money stuff. So Wink was the natural first commissioner. They said that he was a natural commissioner because, well, first, he was a business owner. He had that previous experience as with the uh, the golf and the baseball kind of fantasy teams. So right there, he already knew what he was doing. But they also made a mention that he had all the right equipment to get the job done. He had phone lines, a typewriter, and a mimeograph machine. And if you don't know what a mimeograph machine is, then you're not alone. I was in the same boat, dude. I was all like, the heck is this thing? So I went to Google machine and I got it figured out. 
it was basically an old school copy machine where I'm I'm imagining him typing up maybe the scores, the results or something and slapping it through that mimeograph and making a bunch of copies and passing them out. And especially when he wins, he's like, hey, yeah, check this out and that kind of thing. And in 1965, we ended up having our first, uh, I don't want to say it was a first controversy, but it was one of those things where I guess a reporter would ask Wink, you know, how do you, uh, you know, basically say you could be a commissioner and an owner at the same time? And, and he replied with, well, it's easy. If I can't own a team, they can't hold the draft at my home. You know, like I said, the first draft was at Wink's house. But let's get to that first draft. We didn't talk about all the owners. You know, you have eight inaugural original OG kind of owners. The first was Wink, of course, Sterling Tunnel. There's a George Ross character that keeps pumping up. Bob Blum, who was a Raiders radio announcer. George Glace, who was a Raiders ticket manager. And then Phil Cremona and Ralph Kessebolt both were ticket sellers for the Raiders. Now, supposedly, I saw it where Ron Wolf was one of the original coaches. You know, this is legendary manager for the Packers. He's in the Hall of Fame. But he got his start in the Raiders organization. I guess that Al Davis hired him, and he was a former Colts water boy, and he hired him to work in the front office. So the Green Bay Packers might have fantasy football to thank for the reason why they had all those great runs. But the league is set up, and now it's time for the draft. The first draft, again, was held in Wink's basement in late August of 1962 or 1963. Not sure which one, like I said. Either which way. It is super cool to think. I mean, how many of you have been able to go to a live draft? You know, take it back a step and think about being the first, the pioneers who are going to say, I'm going to take this player and I'm going to, in air quotes, own him on my team for the entire year. And everything he does on the field will translate into scoring points for my virtual fantasy team so that I can be declared the victor, the champ. I can tell everybody how much they are not even close to standard of what I am, you know, that kind of thing. So I I thought it was pretty cool just to think about it. Now we have different kind of, you know, internet drafts and you're not in the same room, might not even be in the same country for that matter. But it's just pretty neat to think about the very first ever fantasy football draft. And they were in some dude's basement and they had no clue what was about to happen. But let's get back to some of the rules. There were different rules for drafting. And this is uh, pre-merger rules, like I said. The AFL and NFL are not together yet. And here's the first one. Prior to the opening of the professional football season, at the evening dinner meeting, club owners will draft 20 players from either league. However, no more than eight imports can be drafted from the NFL. In the event of an injury, which depletes a position, owners shall apply to commissioner for approval to activate a temporary replacement from undrafted players. End quote. Now, like I said, remember, The Oakland Raiders at the time were part of the AFL, and these are all Oakland Raider dudes. So it just kind of made me think about it. It's interesting that one of the things that made the NFL explode exponentially, as in fantasy football, actually came from the AFL. So when they merged together, the AFL has a lot to contribute to the NFL, even though at the time they had no clue that it was really going to do that. You know what I mean? Let's get back to some of the rules. This was the method for drafting players. At the first draft, cards will be cut for first choice, second choice, etc. The last choice or eighth choice will also get ninth choice going back up the ladder. Thus, the first choice will get 16th and 17th choice. After all the cuts have been made, each owner will declare in what position he wants to draft. The following year, 
The first choice goes to the heaviest loser of the preceding year end, and so forth. End quote. So there you have it. Snake drafts were born in the first year. I just kind of assumed that it would have been, you know, like a regular NFL draft where the first team in round one picks first in round two and so on and so forth. But no, they had the wherewithal to recognize that they should do something similar to what we call now a snake draft. And there's that heaviest loser thing again, you know, basically the last place person in the following year is going to get the first pick. Personally, I do not like that. Why reward somebody for not doing that good this year? I mean, oftentimes the last place team is the team that decided to give up. Why would I award them with the first pick in next year's draft? I don't do it that way. Something I recommend as an option is to do NFL pickems, where you assign points and things like that, and then whoever gets the highest points gets to choose their draft selection for the next year. So you're basing draft selection on merit, not from some mediocrity and obscurity and some dude that just gives up and tanks it. We don't want tankers. We want flyers. We want planes, man. But let's get back to roster construction. That first year, each team would select four offensive ends, four halfbacks, two fullbacks, two quarterbacks, two kickoff or punt return men, two field goal kickers, two defensive backs or linebackers, and two defensive linemen. So IDPs, you know, they're part of the OG roster. So I guess I'm doing my home league right, because I use IDP. And again, highly recommend it if you can afford the time and opportunity, because it makes watching the games a whole lot more fun, you know? But the starting lineup. Now this is where something is definitely different from what we do nowadays. The starting lineup rules were as such. The lineup has to be posted with league secretary prior to 12 o'clock Friday morning. If no lineup is posted, the preceding week's lineup will be in effect. End quote. Now I'm like, wait, Friday morning? They still got to go through all those days? I mean, I'm always looking at like the guys that are doubtful and questionable and that kind of thing. And if someone's out, well, I'm putting in the next guy. or I'm going to go ahead and trade for another dude or, you know, that kind of thing, free agent wise and stuff. So it was a little bit different, but this was the first time they ever did it. I don't even think they had injury reports back then, but we'll have to go and check that out. So I have a side tidbit for you. Something that doesn't happen as much nowadays, but was very common back in the 1960s, was they had many players that would play multiple positions. For instance, Houston's George Blanda. He was drafted by two different teams in 1963, or 1962, whichever one we're going with. He was drafted as a quarterback, and he was also drafted as a place kicker. But the teams that drafted him at the time of the draft had to declare, I am taking George Blanda as my, let's just say, quarterback. In fact, that's what he was. He was a quarterback. The first ever fantasy football draft pick on record was George Blanda. George Blanda, the quarterback, that is. So now let's talk about finances. And, you know, paying attention to the league and paying attention to your players and team and that kind of thing. They had a stipulation, a rule, whatever you want to call it. A warning, maybe, perhaps? And it went as such. Inasmuch as this test of skill and knowledge of the players in the AFL and NFL leagues will be backed by coin of the realm, it behooves each club owner to study carefully prior to the draft. All available statistics, schedules, weather conditions, player habits, and other factors so as to preserve one's prestige and finances, end quote. Well, there you go. If you didn't study hard, then yo shall be ridiculed until no end. You have a good fantasy football story, whether you were on top, you were down, you came from behind, whatever it was, you know, the trash talk. I'd love to hear it, and that will fit perfectly into what we're talking about this episode. Or if you have another football story you want to share, head over to myfootballmoment.com, where I give you a couple ways to do so. 
but let's get to the first public fantasy football league ever. And we're hopping into my DeLorean. We're going back. Well, actually, it's forward because we're back in 1963 right now. We're going forward to 1969 at King's X Bar. Owner Andy Musilimus becomes a commissioner of the first ever public fantasy football league. Now, his bar was known for sports trivia, sports-related games, and all sorts of things, you know, watching the game in his bar. But he would end up basically building this, I guess you could say, explosion of fantasy football in the greater Oakland area, which would end up resulting in just this worldwide phenomenon of fantasy football that everybody like you and me can play. And he was also credited with adding the yardage rule to fantasy football in the early 70s which definitely made a difference. I mean, obviously you have a guy like, I don't know, let's say Julio Jones that normally has a whole bunch of yards, but sometimes not a lot of touchdowns. But then you have on the flip side, a guy like LeGarrette Blount that that one year scored so many touchdowns, but he didn't necessarily have a lot of yards. I mean, they could score multiple ways now. It wasn't just waiting for that big, unpredictable play of the touchdown. So it kind of helped. I, I think this helped more of the regular fan, I guess you could call the average fan, whatever it is, a fantasy football, to be able to get into this thing. Because then they're like, yeah, now I have a lot more players that score points. I have a lot more to choose from. It's more, I guess you could say, predictable. Each play, there's a chance for my guy to get points, that kind of thing. So I think even though that rule doesn't get brought up a whole lot, it really should be something that is a significant time in history as far as fantasy football goes. But going back to our father, the father of fantasy football, the Oracle, the great one, the one who had the master plan, Bill Winkenbach. Now, he would pass away on March 7th in 1993 at the age 81. So he didn't really get to see it. I mean, he saw fantasy football, I guess you could say explode, but that massive implosion of an atomic bomb just raking havoc on the entire planet didn't happen until the internet really came around. But even so, there was a quote that came from Scotty Sterling about a conversation he had with Bill Winkenbach, and it went as such. About three years ago, I ran into Bill, and he told me, I told you we should have copyrighted that thing. And another quote came from George Ross, and it went as such. Wink asked me once to put together a board game or something like that, which followed our rules of gopple, but I never had time to do it. It probably would have made a few bucks if it would have copyrighted a patent that thing. I'm like, yeah, man. So this guy definitely was a visionary. And obviously, you know, as you can say, he kept talking about copywriting and board games or things like that. He knew that there was a chance that this thing could blow up, but he had no clue. But totally side note thing. I mean, from a just cool perspective kind of thing. Wink being a Oakland Raiders, you know, kind of part owner, was friends with John Madden. He got to, you know shoot the sham with all the Oakland Raiders organization members and that kind of thing. So he had an insider's perspective, which not quite the Pete Rose type thing, but let's just say he probably had a little bit of insider trading knowledge. But let's get back to the just fantasy football history. That was a brief, quick overview of the first draft, when it started, you know, the founders, the first league, the first public league. But let's just quickly go over some of the other important events in fantasy football history. I'm going to just list these out, so try to hang with me if you will. The first one comes from September of 1974. This is when the first known ladies division begins in King X Bar. Then in September of 1989, 
This is when they first recorded over 1 million people playing fantasy football, which that's a pretty good number. We know that's definitely small compared to nowadays, but at the time, I mean, that was like, hey, 1 million people are excited about this exact same thing. We have a bunch of fantasy football goobers around the world, you know. But the thing that happened 10 years later in July of 1999 really helped massively explode the game of fantasy football. This is when Yahoo goes against the grain, and they offer their first ever fantasy football product, but they offer it for free. So this helped them hold the number one spot as the fantasy football provider for years to come. Then in September of 2006, we reached over 12 million fantasy football players, and this exponential growth helped convince major TV networks that they had to pay attention. They were put on notice. And in September 2009, DirecTV launched the Red Zone channel, which maybe not a direct correlation and only because of this, but pretty much the reason, or at least the biggest reason why they did this was because the fans needed to see all their different touchdowns. So I would say there's definitely a correlation to the DirecTV Red Zone channel launching in the explosion of fantasy football in the previous years. And also in 2009, at the South by Southwest Conference in Austin, Texas, in a random backyard, five people were talking about a unique experience, something that they really wish would be out there. This is when FanDuel and DFS was born. And speaking of daily fantasy football, I included some links to the big three in the show notes that provides various bonuses for you. It really takes the game to a whole new level when you get to play DFS. So if you have any questions, feel free to head to the contact page or Twitter, and I'll be glad to help you out. And like I said, there's links to each of the big three over in the show notes on the site. But even though it wouldn't really totally explode as far as DFS until later, 2009 could be where we said it was born. Another thing that was born was August of 2010, the Toyota Hall of Fame was born. Then in the fall of 2011, we had our inaugural Fantasy Football Hall of Fame class, where just a bunch of average, regular people were able to receive glory and get some busts into the Fantasy Football Hall of Fame. And this class of honorable individuals went as such. The first was Greg Paget, then Brian Music, Philip Lewis, Eric Graffemeyer, and Chad Bishop. That was your first Fantasy Football Hall of Fame class back in 2011, and they do it every year. So like I said, that was kind of like just a quick, brief overview of fantasy football. This is the time of year where everyone gets into it. So when you go to draft your team this upcoming August, think about our father of fantasy football, Bill Winkenbach. But with that said, fantasy football continues to be a force in the popularity of the National Football League. According to the Fantasy Sports Trade Association, the number of fantasy sports players in 2017 was 59.3 million people. This is an estimate, but there are only 22 countries in the world with a larger population. To give you a perspective, 59.3 million people would basically be like saying the entire population of Italy playing fantasy sports. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Football History Dude and were able to gain a few knowledge nuggets about the history of fantasy football. In the upcoming episode, we're going to go back to 1963 Hall of Fame class, and I'm going to cover the life and career of George Preston Marshall. But for now, dudes, I'm through if you're through. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice 
and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads.